Hey guys, Notch here. And before tonight's episode, I have a quick request for all of you. Go on to iTunes, go on to Stitcher, or go on to SoundCloud where this podcast is posted and hit the subscribe button. Also, Jeff and I would love to hear what you have to say about Toughcast over Twitter or commenting on places like SoundCloud or Reddit. So let us know what you think. We'd love to hear back from you. All right, everybody, we've got a great episode for you tonight. I hope you enjoy it. Coming to you from the Twin Cities, this is Toughcast. And hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Toughcast. This one's special, I got three guests on the line with me here. My name is Notch, sitting next to me on the couch is Brian Quarstad. He's got a nom de gore, you know, James Madison, I think he was what, uh, what was his, in the Federalist Papers, he was called uh, Publius. Brian Corsad here is I Am Soccer News, Inside Minnesota Soccer News. How are you doing, Brian? I'm doing great. Great to be here tonight. Fantastic. Also joining us by Skype, our first Neil Morris from Carolina. How are you doing, Neil? I'm great, Notch. How are you? Fantastic. Fantastic. And also is Karthik, who I like for no other reason than the fact that his Twitter cover background is a cat, and I'm a cat person. How are you doing, Karthik? I'm doing quite well. Great to great be, to be with you. I was hoping I'd get an Alexander Hamilton reference rather than James Madison reference at the top of the show. <laughs> uh, uh, next time, next time, next time you're back. Well, the three of these guys have been covering second division soccer for probably more than some of you have known soft soccer's existence, uh, <laughs> given the way our fan bases have all expanded. So I'm really, really happy that you guys are here to recap what happened in 2015. And just to start, this was a season going in where we started with a flurry of changes. The ESPN3 deal was announced. There was a new expansion coming in, Jacksonville Armada. Uh, We were coming off a season with another great expansion, Indy 11. There were some expectations. Uh, It was was a season that started out with, I think, a lot of hope. And uh, would would you guys agree with that, that basis of where we were at the beginning of this year? Yeah, I would say, from my perspective, I think that there was a lot of optimism coming into the season about the league. Jacksonville kicking off with a, with a massive crowd at, at uh, Altel Stadium, or, or whatever the stadium is called now. It used to be Altel Stadium, the, the, the former Gator Bowl site. Uh, for that opener against FC Edmonton, they had had massive crowds for a couple of uh, preseason games, one against Tampa Bay and one against the Philly Union. And so Jacksonville kind of drove the narrative to a lot of optimism at the beginning of the season, but then... Uh, the, the harsh reality of second division soccer in this country soon set in for all of us. Brian? And that would be, I, I'm just curious what the harsh reality is. Oh, the harsh reality is that there, there are all these off the field issues, the, that there are teams that are not, uh, that are not necessarily stable. There are ownership issues in a lot of places. Then of course we had this FIFA scandal involving, the I, I don't even know the term to use to describe traffic's influence in this league, but they, they have they've had an outsized and oversized influence in NASL since the very beginning, and they were caught as, as one of the epicenters of this FIFA scandal. And then the reality that after the feel good story of Jacksonville and everything kicking off, that outside of of the few of us that talked to one another about this league, a whole lot of people didn't care about what was going on in the greater kind of U.S. soccer landscape, which is unfortunate. It's gotten better than it was. It's better than it was when Brian and I were writing articles in 2009 about the USL uh, Team Owners Association issue, and people were saying, well, why doesn't just USL and second division soccer go away? All we need is MLS. It's not like that anymore, but there are, there's still a contempt or indifference in, in large uh, portions of, of our soccer fan base to, to, toward this league and lower divisions in general. So let's dig into specific issues. And Neil, I know you want to come in. I just want to ask you to start. Actually, we're talking about quality of play and the players that we brought in. Do you think 20 NASL 2015 was an improvement over NASL 2014? Oh, sure. Um, And in, in many different ways, Uh, as far as player product i mean you know we, we'll talk more about this in greater detail i'm sure as we go along but uh, with with pay with payrolls rising uh which they have been and continue to rise uh thanks mainly to to three particular teams in the league uh the quality of player and the nature of player has has risen uh now whether 
no, and and that had varying dividends depending on the team. I mean, many some of the players that Minnesota brought in worked worked quite well, like Ibsen uh, and and Hassan and some of the others that I think contributed quite well. You you also paid a, a hefty sum to Johnny Steele. That didn't work out so well. Um, so I mean, it, it's it's no, no matter. What, I was wondering how long it would take you to get to that. You know, not it long. took you longer than I thought it would. Not long. But but no, I mean, but it's it's still the same thing. No matter what the pay scale is, your ceiling is going to be higher, but your your floor is still going to be the same. Uh, you know, Peter Wilt said mainly the same thing about about the Indy Eleven. They 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 have a limited payroll, but they expended a fair sum on Cliberson, and you know, and then he's a walking uh, mash unit. So it doesn't work out for Indy Eleven, and then they're left with nothing else. So. You know, the league is in one of those stages where you have a lot of teams that are spending a lot of money on, on, on payroll, but it's still it's still a matter of choosing the right players with the right mix. Tampa's spending a ton of players, but it's a lot of ill-fitting parts. The Cosmos spent a lot of money, and they know what has to fit together. So it's still, it's still the same thing, really. Brian, when you were seeing the on-pitch product, did you think it was an improvement? I, I did. I thought it was... Uh, there was a, few, a number of games this year that were really quality. I mean, I, I look, of course, because I'm a Minnesota fan, but the Minnesota, uh, and you've seen these games, the Minnesota-New York series, when, when we played, every game was about as good a quality as you will see out of second division uh, and a lot more intriguing than a lot of MLS games were this year. Um, it was it was good quality soccer. Now, again, don't, don't, don't take that as me saying, uh, the NASL product is good as MLS. I'm not saying that. <laughs> Brian Corsat has now made his allegiances clear. <laughs> but but they were good. And there were other games throughout the season that were really good games. I mean, even the final, um, Ottawa was, uh, just ended up being an excellent team. Uh, that was fun to watch them come together. Uh, I think there was, as every year, there seems to be discrepancies in the league you know, between the haves and the have-nots. And I think, you know, Neil, Carolina, <laughs> I think we saw that a little bit this year with Carolina. Um, uh, I think it was a struggle at times for them. But you look at um, uh, for Lauderdale, and they were up and down. And I know they didn't have the highest payroll, but they did pretty well with the players that they had brought in. And I was skeptical, you know, in the beginning. But uh, Fort Lauderdale put a good product out there overall. They had some weaknesses that ended up in in the end ended up hurting them, but they were an exciting team to watch. And, and Karthik, you know, one of the big name, biggest names that came to M- uh, NASL at the start of this year was Leo Mora, and I, that's one of the things that I saw <laughs> this year was big name players like Ibsen, Mora, Raul stepping in. Mora, for instance, did not work, but some of these others did. What was your perception about these big name acquisitions? Did they do what they were supposed to do? Well, Raul certainly did. I mean, I think Raul sold tickets when uh, the the Cosmos went on the road. I think he contributed, maybe not as consistently as many had hoped, but look at his age and look and look at kind of the the, the, the incline or decline in his career. Uh, I, I think Ibsen was fantastic. I mean, I, Ibsen was on my Golden Ball ballot. He was that good. He was that impressive to me. And I thought he was he was actually uh, he helped Minnesota improve after uh, the aforementioned Johnny Steele and. Uh, <laughs> Our friend uh, Miguel Ibarra, who I thought actually might get a run out yesterday in the U.S. game against Trinidad and Tobago when they were trying to keep the ball a little better than they were uh, the first part of that second half, but he didn't. Uh, but when Ibarra left and, and Johnny Steele was was released, I, I thought, uh, wow, Minnesota might have some problems. And Ibsen really stepped up. He, he was very impressive. As far as Fort Lauderdale and Leo Morrow is concerned, re- releasing him and then signing the three players they did over the break – after they released Leomora, let him go back to Brazil, vastly improved the team. So, again, you can spend a lot of money on players in this league, but it, it, it's a matter of, of fits, and it's, this is just a different animal. Uh, the leagues in the United States are a different animal than leagues anywhere else in the world, and, and we've seen a lot of incredibly decorated star players who were fantastic in Europe come to Major League Soccer and flop. Over and over again, I could give you a list of about two dozen players. Uh, the people who don't like MLS don't want to hear that list but because they want to claim the league is terrible. But the reality is that happens. And the same thing happens with NASL. Travel, uh, the pitches, the, all, all kinds of you know, training. Everything is very different here. And it, it, it impacts players. And some players acclimate and others just don't. Let's yeah. – 
so you know what, yeah, one ahead. other thing I'll add real quick the you know we, we talked about Raul but we're we're sort of neglecting probably the biggest domestic name that came to the league this year or at least the, maybe the biggest name short of Raul Freddie Adu actually joined the NASL <laughs> yeah absolutely and the, and the fact that it took I don't know how much time has elapsed so far for us to bring up his name is I don't know if that's indicative of the league in a good way or a bad way actually one other one other thing I wanted to mention you know Brian mentioned the Railhawks play and 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 at times, uh, as some of the northern pitch riders have mentioned, uh, they played some of the worst soccer in the league at times. But they also finished sixth in the league this year. And the, the I guess the point, you know, other people, many people have made this point, including myself. And this may be a good topic to to dub or to springboard into. You know, we've got a massively stratified league. At least this year, we did. You know, the difference in points between third and fourth place was twelve points. The difference between fourth and eleventh was ten. Uh, there's something to be said for parity, but there's not much parity between that top three and then the the bottom seven or eight or whatever. Uh, and, and I'm not sure what that says about the league, but I think it 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 shows that other than those outliers that you tend to have, like Ottawa, maybe uh, people know that up to get into the upper tier of the league, they're going to have to. They're going to have to be, make big moves and probably spend big money. Let's, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that because I think Fort Lauderdale played a certain money ball to a certain degree and got into that fourth spot uh, with a payroll actually in the spring, in the fall that was probably lower than the spring. So, it, it, again, it's about finding the right players, and that's not easy, but it, it can be done. San Antonio did it last year with the second lowest payroll in the league. They won the championship in 2014, and Fort Lauderdale – was a lucky, uh, unlucky bounce, a questionable call away from potentially being in the final this past weekend with a very low payroll. Let's move from the players and the pitch product to briefly the attendances and the actual physical facilities themselves. What did we think about the fact that, Neil, you pointed this out in this great article that you published this morning, which talked about how a lot of the teams or attendance did go up. There were some outliers at the bottom. Uh, and overall, there weren't any, too many big facility changes this year. No, there weren't. Uh, but I mean, but the the good news is, and again, you know, attendance is it's not the 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 best. It's not the best indicator, but it's the easiest one, and it's the the the, 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 the easiest one to get wrong too if things don't go well. Attendance went up seven percent this year uh, from last year. More importantly, or more notably. It's up 27% from two years ago. It's up 55% across the league from 2012. That's amazing. It is amazing. Uh, now, some of that is due to durable expansion franchises that have come in. But, hey, that's part of the equation. Uh, if you bring in flops, you're going to feel that, that detriment. If you bring in successful expansion franchises, you're going to enjoy the benefit. So, you know, some people who may say, well, it's gone up because you brought in Indy or Jacksonville. Well, yeah, that's right. Um, you've still got, uh, you know, most, most of the majority of the teams enjoyed minor increases from last year. The only notable, uh, uh, diminish, uh, was Indy 11, uh, which was, I think a lot of that I chalk up to sort of a sophomore swoon really. Uh, and then Edmonton, which is just a, just a, a perennial dumpster fire. Uh, I, I don't know what the solution is there, but going to Fort McHenry for two of your games is definitely not one of the solutions, even though it's a fantastic facility, by the way, mm-hmm. but one that's five hours north of Edmonton. So I, I don't know. Edmonton is no closer to a solution to their facility and, and attendance problem now than they were probably three years ago. Uh, but as far as other facilities, you know, there weren't any changes, but you know, one one of the you know sort of the sub point of what you said was that there's a variety of teams that need a facility change. Edmonton needs a facility change. New York definitely needs a facility change. Uh, in Indy wants one, but they can get by for a few more years. So there's there's a few teams that need it to go to the next level. Uh, but but the attendance levels are on a on a steady rise. Um, and we'll see if that, that continues next year, but that's a topic for later in the discussion, I'm sure. You know, the other thing to look at when we're talking attendance, of course, is marketing. And I think that, you know, one of the things, the good things that the NASL has done is they've attracted owners who are willing to invest in marketing. And, and, and I still question, and I know that, you know, FAF has put a, a 
fair amount of money into his team up there um, yep. uh, uh, up in Edmonton. But I still question, you know, how are they marketing? There's got to be a way to get more people out to their games than they, than they are now. But you, you look at uh, uh, what's happened in Jacksonville, and we knew that would be a good spot. Uh, I think everybody was excited about that, uh, about them opening, and they did well all year. Um, and really, quite frankly, that Indy is doing as well as they are uh, with uh, the, you know, kind of the terrible results they've had for two years and running now mm-hmm. on the field is yeah. pretty remarkable. And of course, a tribute to Peter Welt and him understanding how to market. I mean, so so I think the marketing has been up. It's uh, increased a lot. We know with Minnesota, it's increased a lot. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's been huge. Let's talk about, actually, this brings up a very good topic of front office competence, which has sometimes been a topic of contention over the years from what I understand, the competence of various teams, the ability of front offices to get things done and produce successful, sustainable franchises. Karthik, how did you feel about front offices in 2015? I think it it, it was a mixed bag. It varies from club to club. I think... uh... San Antonio, and I know, uh, Neil, you disagree with me on this, but San Antonio, if, if they do, in fact, leave the league, I don't think it's any great loss, personally. I think that they're a poorly run team. I don't think they have the uh, resources to compete as NASL gets stronger and as their attendance, which was, which has been quite good since 2012, no longer is an outlier and it's just basically an average attendance in, in a league which where attendance is improving and where front offices are getting better and standards are getting better. I, I don't think losing them is a big deal. I'd say they're they're at the bottom. Uh, FC Edmonton has had some issues. Rod Proudfoot's going to move on. But uh, the front office of the New York Cosmos is very good. They've got uh, in Eric Stover, a guy who understands stadiums. Uh, he can't get the stadium deal done without the help of the legislature in Albany, and there's some hang-ups there. But he's a guy who, who knows this business, knows the stadium business, knows the soccer business in this country. He's very good at his job. They've got in their their coaches – Three local coaches, all of whom played at at a high level in Major League Soccer and know Long Island and the New York area. So the Cosmos obviously have to be at the top of that list. I think Carolina has a good front office, and they'll be able to expand on that going forward as they now have uh, more money to spend on more personnel and the the people they have in their front office. And Neil can speak to this a little more more accurately than I can – have have been overworked these last few years. I, I think you've got really good staff and front office people in Indy, Jacksonville, and Tampa Bay, with the exception of the owner in Tampa Bay. I know we'll get to that <laughs> subject later. Fort Lauderdale has a massive learning curve. They have had a lot of problems this season. They're continuing to have problems as we speak at this very moment on this very day. So uh, that's a team that needs to fix some of their problems. What kind of... Uh... So, so what, what kind of problems do you think that they're having at the moment? Fort Lauderdale is having a, issues with having multiple owners who don't necessarily see eye to eye, who have employees or people that they have put in the front office who are loyal to one owner or another. There are fiefdoms that have developed. There are misunderstandings that have developed. There are misunderstandings between people on the soccer side and on the front office side. There are misunderstandings between people within the soccer uh, hierarchy, which is why there were issues between this manager, Gunter Kronsteiner, who's now out, and the technical director. And there were differences between the previous general manager and the technical director, uh, Amari Nunez, and he was let go. And I thought he did a fantastic job of playing Moneyball this year and producing – a very very good team on a on a shoestring budget. You know, you know, Cardi together late. Cardi, yeah. you, you know, the one thing that just I I keep thinking about is something I heard years ago is that I know people don't always like to uh, call second division, third division soccer or NASL uh, minor league soccer, but it is lower division soccer. But it is it's minor league, and I mean, no matter what we do, we're still going to have some of these kind of issues going on. I I just don't think there's any way around it because you're not at the same kind of level as major league soccer or major league, you know, whatever in this country. So therefore you're just, you're just always going to have some of this kind of turmoil that happens within. And same thing with like San Antonio, you talked about San Antonio. And again, there's a club that, you know, soccer was never their number one goal. It never was. It never was. And that's why I, I, I know, Brian, you and I talked privately about it when I worked for the league, and I can talk publicly about it now. I never thought it was going to work out long term. It it, it worked out longer than I thought it would. 
But I think the league, including Commissioner Peterson, they won't say this, but I think they'll be very happy if they see the backside of Gordon Hartman and that that situation. At the time, we were desperate for teams. At the time, we were desperate for stories. At the time, we were desperate for, for good vibes. And and Gordon Hartman, Soccer with a Cost brought us that. But I think now in 2015, going into 2016, the league is well past that. And we don't need to be attached to something which, quite frankly, will, will bog the league down if, if it stays in the league much longer. So, Neil, I, I want you to talk a little bit about that. But I want to throw a couple more topics into the discussion that are somewhat intermingled, which is owners in the league in 2015, the front office of the league and their credibility and how it might have improved uh, or diminished or how you perceive that and the litigation that the league threatened or entered into this year as well. Those are some pretty big topics, but I think they're yeah. somewhat linked. Well, I, how much time do I have? Uh, <laughs> uh, let, let's start with the first one first, the owners in the league. Um, yeah, and by the way, I just want to quick one quick thing about, and not to add to your list, but Let's give a quick shout out to someone who never gets discussed in, in these league recaps. Let's talk about the front office of the Atlanta Silverbacks. Um, that is a league-owned team who not only generated a, a competitive team on the field this year, uh, but if you paid attention to 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 the guys who were running the front office and the PR guys and the communication folks with what had to be a, a shoestring budget, they generated – some pretty good content this year. I mean, I know they even traveled on to some games. Um, yeah. And some of the stuff they were doing earlier in the year with, with like, tactical analysis and stuff, I was actually shocked that they did it. And, you know, I think they deserve a lot of credit for not just being a doormat this year on and off the field. Now, I had heard this, Neil, I had heard this uh, about Adam Geigerman when he was in Laredo with the Laredo yeah. PDL. He is a rock star. So if Atlanta goes yeah. away, somebody wants someone to run their PR, uh, even maybe in Major League Soccer, I mean, or at least to be in their PR office in Major League Soccer, that's the guy, Adam Geigerman in Atlanta. Look him up. Hundred percent right. Adam did a great job this year. Um, now, as far as ownership is concerned, it's it's interesting. Um, what's caught my attention about the ownership shift is not just the new owners coming in, but it's the shift in the boardroom. Now, Cardick and I, and and apparently Brian and I disagree about. The, the 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 value of San Antonio leaving the league. I, I, I feel it's much more detrimental than they do. But let's set that topic to the side. What's interesting is that, you know, we talk about a lot how the composition of the boardroom has changed since none of the original TOA folks are still around. But what's also happening is that two of, if you talk to other front office uh, representatives around the league and owners around the league, Two of the most respected uh, minds in that boardroom over the last three or four years or so have been Bill McGuire and Gordon Hartman. People respect those two guys. They just do, uh, probably for what they accomplished personally, frankly, and the fact that they're, you know, McGuire's had his problems in the past, but for the most part, they're pretty up and up, unlike maybe an, an owner down in Florida. So those two guys... <laughs> Those two guys are are on the way out, okay? And what you have coming in are some question marks. You know, what's Ricardo Silva's uh, investment, not monetary, but spiritual, if you want to say, is going to be? What is it going to be in the league? What's his attitude going to be? Is this he is going Ricardo to be, Silva from Miami. Yeah, that's right. Is he going to be sorry, Is he going to be locked up with the Cosmos mindset? Uh, Carmelo Anthony's coming in. I've actually been somewhat impressed with his engagement, but he's got a day job. Uh, Oklahoma City, oh my goodness, what the heck is going on there? So you've got a really, and, and of course, then Carter talks about sort of the tri-headed weirdness that's going on with Fort Lauderdale. So, I mean, the, the attitude of the boardroom, uh, which is not the TOA days, traffic's gone, the Wellmans are gone, everybody's gone. Hey, Neil, just but, two, the but, TOA. But two of the most successful owners that have come in are also transitioning out, and I don't know how that's going to bode for the boardroom come over the next two or three years. I, I just want to mention the TOA for people that don't know. It was the Team Owners Association that six years ago broke away and created the NESL. Right. Absolutely. And there's a great recap you guys created of what the last six years have have meant so go go find that online uh, what about the the front office and th they threatened for example litigation against the Oklahoma City 
Energy, Stim McLaughlin, which was then withdrawn. You had some le- legal letters sent over to the United States Soccer Federation. There's been a lot of comments, as always, by Commissioner Bill Peterson, which are perceived by the popular opinion. Uh, I-, I tend to, I think, generally give him more credit than a lot of my fan peers do. Uh, but I would be interested in hearing how much those of you who've been following this for so long and hear a lot of what he say and have contact with him, what do you guys think about this litigation and the credibility of the NASL front office? <laughs> Where do we start? <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of one. I, I, I would say I think the Dan McLaughlin lawsuit was um, something that I guess now that we see that M- uh, NASL has put a team in Oklahoma City and that the remaining owners have made it work that they needed to they needed to file and they needed to settle and they needed to push that to show that they were still serious to show to those owners that have gone and gotten Ryan Viacano to invest in their market and in their model or in, in their vision uh, that that the league backed them up and that the league was serious about that that after the league had dropped Oklahoma City very quietly from the website masthead and had dropped any mention of future expansion to Oklahoma City. So I think that might have been very symbolic in some ways. As far as the uh, legal posturing with the United States Soccer Federation, I, I think the United States Soccer Federation is a rotten organization that is doing business. You know, they, they feel like as uh, soccer journalists or soccer fans or supporters, whatever in this country, we owe them for bringing, them the, bringing the game to this country, right? We owe them. We should be in their debt. We should be forever grateful to them and everything they bring us and everything they do. But no, our fans now are more sophisticated than that. Our journalists who write about uh, professional soccer and write about the United States women's and men's national team are more sophisticated than that. We don't just have to uh, accept what they say and the way they do their business uh, carte blanche. They're used to not being uh, criticized. They're used to not being pushed by journalists. So uh, a lot of what the NESL did is start to push their buttons. And I think for some very valid reasons. And I think the United States Soccer Federation has a cozy relationship with keeping the status quo and with the game staying at a certain level where they can control all the levers in this country. That having been said, the idea of the NASL competing with Major League Soccer, which is a league that is much better than and a much further along from a business standpoint and from a footballing standpoint and a lot of NASL fans and particularly fans of the Cosmos realize it is it is a much better league and it is a much more sophisticated business and a much stronger operational uh, soccer league than just about any league in the world to be honest with you it's it's in the top 10 as far as operations marketing and the way they conduct their business Uh, competing with major league soccer I think is, is a folly on the part of the NASL however I do believe that there are grievances with the United States Soccer Federation and their questioning of the United States Soccer Federation and the arbitrary things that they do to run the game in this country are very, very valid. You know, Neil, I'm curious uh, your take on this being an attorney and some of the things that have come out this year with the, uh, you know, USL saying they wanted Division uh, Two sanctioning and, uh, you know, all the other things parts the traffic the fifa scandal and traffic and all the other things how did that lawsuit do you think that played into uh, uh it was all part of that or ne- it was never a lawsuit the threat of a lawsuit uh, was it part of what well i mean was it do you think that it was is it standalone just because they'd really want division one status or were they posturing to want division one status because usl wanted Division two status and and all the other things that were going on with uh, uh, p- part of this is legal analysis and part of it is just reading the tea leaves. My my position on this is that it was mainly posturing, but I don't think it had as much to do with USL's posturing at the same time as much as and and I wrote this a couple of months ago in an article that I published. My belief is that to maintain and attract the the level and type of investor that the NASL wants and needs that they have to have something to shoot for. They have to be able to have uh, the ambition and the hope to extract value from their club. And there's more than one way to skin that cat. 
And one of those is in the way to keep them within the NASL fold is the promise of D1 sanctioning and to say that we're going to actually get on the same level with MLS and compete. I'm not, I'm not judging the propriety of that, but it's, it's sort of the phrase that I've used since then is whether this D1 posturing was just a matter of the NSL using it to thrive, which I think they are, or is it really also a matter of what they need to do to survive? Because with the type of investor they're bringing in and the level of investor they're bringing in, those folks are not going to sit back and say, we're fine being D2 long term. They're just not. Um, it works for a while. And if they sell to someone else, you can start the cycle over and, 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 hit, this, and hit the snooze button. But to keep those people around and to keep them spending the money that they're spending in some markets, they have to have the hope that it's going to be Division One one way or another. And we're, we've seen Bill McGuire find a way to get Division One. We've seen Gordon Hartman find a way to flip and, and extract value from his club. And none of those are ways that really necessarily directly help the NASL, although you could argue that Minnesota is an indirect benefit. Uh, that's my belief. I think any direct legal action is is the nuclear option. And and I and my suspicion is that if they ever actually did it, it would go the way of, of the litigation between USFL and the NFL back in the day, where they spent themselves into oblivion. They actually won the case and ended up with like what, a three dollar judgment and the league went away. I mean it's 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 not the same set of facts, but I think the litigation would go a similar way. The NASL does it have them in it to fight? I think they, that happens when they get backed into a corner. You know, I'd like to talk, too, a little bit about the the whole traffic situation this year. And, of course, Railhawks are, are now sold, which we're, we're happy about. They have an individual owner who looks like they're going to invest in the club. But um, the whole uh, surroundings of, you know, when the FIFA, FIFA thing broke with the Department of Justice – and Aaron Davidson, which, you know, all three of us know pretty well, probably Cardick better than anyone because you worked with pretty closely with him. But, um, you know, it was it was frustrating to me because we knew, all three of us knew, that traffic was still heavily invested in the league. But the league, uh, you know, made this blanket statement the same day that the 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 indictment came down on on uh, Davidson that uh, they had disassociated themselves with it. Well, we knew you don't disassociate yourself with someone who's a major investor. And there was a real frustration for me uh, in that the league just didn't kind of talk about it and be open. And this is the frustration in general that I have with the league is the lack of openness at times. Uh, they, we'll see like with MLS and USL as well. We'll see a little more um, uh, openness about certain things. And I just, it's a, it was a huge frustration. And then they started using the PR thing by going to Europe and releasing all their stories there. They wouldn't talk to the American journalists about it. So they go to Europe and then they come out with all these fluff pieces because they don't know the right questions to ask. So that, that was a huge frustration for me this year with the league. Um, well, Cardick, what do you think about that? Yeah, I have to co-sign on that. I mean, that it was obvious what they were doing, going over to European press, to the Telegraph, to Lamarca, to the Guardian, and, and, and basically people who are, one, the, in the European press, they're into promotion and relegation, so the NASL can go uh, can go wave that flag. They think they, they have an outsized influence. Uh, uh, impression of what the New York Cosmos represents because they know about the 1970s and early 1980s New York Cosmos from a Franz Beckenbauer Pele standpoint and this globetrotting team um, and, and, they, and they don't realize that the, that the club and the brand doesn't have that much relevance in the United States soccer scene anymore so they're able to play that card with the European press and they're also able to play the card of well Major League Soccer has really strange rules and is a really weird league and is a bad league to uh, the European press in a way that uh, all three of those themes don't necessarily work with those of us who cover the game for a living in the United States. So they took that course and they did that. And it was very, very, I think, uh, one, it was noted by a lot of people besides the the, the three of us, uh, noted by people who, uh, even by fans and by other journalists who don't necessarily cover the NASL. The second thing is that I, I found it to be 
the tone of it to be somewhat condescending. So I was very disappointed in, in the league's approach to that, uh, perhaps driven by the New York Cosmos, but also executed by the league office. As far as traffic is concerned, we still never got the answers that we wanted about the B stock, the things that Brian reported on in May, the things that uh, Jonathan Tannenwald from Philly.com talked about, uh, has talked about several times on Soccer Morning. I know a show that Neil is uh, is on quite often as and well. I just want to throw a little bit of background here. Traffic was essential to the NASL's early operations. They were investors in the league. There are some sort of, I'm going to call them rumors right now because I can't think of a better word that I can say with surety. Uh, rumors that they've had a controlling state or have a controlling state in NASL. NASL has said that they've severed business relations with traffic. But there, as you were just saying, there's been no transparency or knowledge about what that has actually translated to. And they actually they right, did, they is... did admit it to the New York Times. So the New York Times came down on them and said, we're going to run this story. They finally did admit that they do own the B stock, which is the majority of stock. And, of and I, stock. I, have to, I have to point out here, okay, because a lot of the people who are cheerleaders for NASL, particularly Cosmos fans, and I hate to keep singling out Cosmos fans, but they're the most vocal, talk about MLS's business model, how terrible MLS is, how MLS is this closed shop, closed league. MLS is incredibly transparent when it comes to finding out who owns uh, who owns teams, what the kind of relationship between investors and operators are, and the, and the league, how board votes go at at, at their board meetings, uh, how the board is comprised, uh, all of this information. If I if I wanted to talk to Dan Courtmanch tomorrow morning and get this information from MLS, I would get it. But NASL is is very hesitant about releasing any of these sorts of things. And people like Neil, myself, and Brian, and Steve Sandor, and some of the other people who cover this league closely have to dig and dig and dig and go to secondary and third sources. And then uh, there's something that might be that the league finds uh, questionable. Maybe we've got 95% of the story right, but they don't like 5% of it. And then we'll get a phone call saying, well, you didn't report it accurately. Well, you haven't actually given us the information or been transparent about this. And it's not just with us, but it's with your fans. Why? You have a different different relationship with your fans than MLS does because you have fewer fans and they're closer to the teams. Why do you think this desire to keep things close to the chest, why do you think that comes in? Uh, do one of you have an insight as to, or, or guess as to why that's the case here? With this I think that's a traffic thing. <laughs> Well, it's partly. I mean, let me let me. Uh, there's a few things that you you guys just talked about. I'd like to unpack a little bit, at least from my perspective. Uh, one uh, is MLS may be more transparent in some things, but I doubt you're going to get the the a full appraisal of the inner workings of Soccer United Marketing if you call it there tomorrow. Um, that is correct. That is correct, Neil. Okay. Thank you. That, and that's the and that's the real analogy. Um, first, one quick thing, and this is total hunch maybe in borderline rumor mongering on my part. I, I still believe that traffics has an investment in this league and, and it's not just because we haven't heard anything about them totally divesting all of their of their of their holdings. But if you're on the ground here in Carolina, the way that the league sort of treated this transition of ownership, which they helped facilitate, but they didn't come down for the press conference. The the press cut the press release that they issued when Steve Malik bought the league was direct with just a copy of what the Railhawks wrote. It's very strange. And it, it, it almost looked like they were going out of their way to not dance on traffic's grave. And you have to ask yourself why that is. Uh, regarding sort of the British press, I mean the the the, the clear reason they've been courting British articles through a, a PR firm that was marketing those things is because they're courting European investors. That's where the league is looking for its next phase of investment. Now, whether that's just because there's a lot of rich people in Europe who want to spend money or whether MLS and USL is beating them to the punch for the domestic investors, maybe it's a combination of both. But the league has recognized that there are Europeans and there's American expats over there who have a lot of money uh, who may be interested in, in investing in, quote, the U.S. market. I know that they were they they actively were courting at least one, maybe two sizable investors who were interested in purchasing the Railhawks. It didn't happen, but they were at the top of the list. Uh, we've heard about far potential foreign investment in the next expansion uh, announcement that's going to come in a in a few months or a month or two, which a lot of us believe is going to be San Francisco. Uh, you know, obviously Rio OKC is a European investment. 
We've heard rumors about Celtic. I mean, the, the, and there's other folks that we haven't even heard of. That is where the league has identified uh, their 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 pot of gold. And that's why you're seeing a targeting of the press over there to develop the reputation of the league. Finally, as far as transparency from the league in general, I think they're going the way of a lot of sports leagues in this country, especially the bigger they get, especially MLS, who had, for because the Main Street press wouldn't pay attention to them forever, they had to develop their own marketing uh, apparatus. The league, the NASL, would love to be able to do that. And what, But here's the thing. Just as the NASL, and I've, I've talked about this a lot behind the scenes and not so much publicly, just as the NSL wants to go D1 corporately and D1 sanction and D1 on the field, they want to go D1 media also. Uh, and there's a lot of folks like us right now who have been covering the league for a long time that the league, frankly, doesn't want to bother with anymore. I mean, I hate to say it that way, but it's true. Uh, and you've seen it this year. They have courted, uh, and, and, and I don't blame them to this extent. I mean, if you can... If you can draw in some of the bigger outlets, that's that's the way to get more coverage. That's the way the world works. But you've seen it. When Ronaldo came to Fort Lauderdale, uh, SI was given an exclusive with him. Uh, when Miami FC was announced, the New York Times was given an exclusive interview with Ricardo Silva that ran the day of. When Puerto Rico FC was announced, uh, ESPN uh, FC was given an exclusive with Carmelo Anthony that ran. There was, and there was no other telephone teleconference that same day, which I thought was a big mistake by the league. Uh, when, and it goes on and on. And, and by the way, I do know that some of those same outlets got mad when some of the other outlets were given those exclusives. So it all becomes sort of this incestuous thing. Uh, but that's part of the lack of transparency. The, the league wants to control its messaging now. It does not believe that it is beholden to the bloggers and and the websites and the and and the local media anymore. They want to be SI ESPN NYT. That's what they want now, and that's all well and good. But those guys are there when there's good news, and they're absent when you're not feeding the beast. That, that that's a great observation, Neil. Let me just jump in here for a second to talk about how that's now played out in Major League Soccer. Major League Soccer did the same thing, and then they centralized a lot of their content and messaging through MLSsoccer.com. When they brought that in-house, they started poaching writers from the mainstream outlets uh, and, and, and paying them out of uh, from MLS Digital. What has ended up happening is a lot of the teams, now again, we hear that MLS is centralized and it's controlled and it's socialist and the teams are run by the league. That's not exactly true. What has ended up happening in the last two or three seasons in Major League Soccer is that the teams now have gone and re-empowered those bloggers, including some very young bloggers who have no historical perspective on anything that's happened in, in the world of U.S. soccer. And they've got almost like this, this counter, I don't, I don't want to describe a counterculture, but this counter media going on where MLS is very corporate, they're dealing with uh, New York Times, SI.com, ESPN FC, Fox Soccer, and then you've got teams like Seattle, Los Angeles, uh, Orlando, Portland, Kansas City, whoever, that have empowered a lot of bloggers, a lot of bloggers who blog for Bleacher Report and SB Nation, and they're pumping out the team messaging that way. And maybe that's the evolution we'll eventually see in NASL. The teams will begin to re-empower people like the three of us. So I, I, I do have to move us, us along, and we've uh, overstepped the time that I'd given us for a break, so we'll just power through into some of the future talk that I had uh, planned. One of the things I want to ask about is we've been hearing a lot of rumors about this Canadian League started by the CSA to bring in some teams. The importance of Canada to the NASL is something that's uh, been a byproduct of that conversation. So I'm, I'm going to throw that out to you. It, tomorrow, you know, we've heard uh, Ottawa say that they're kind of, the messaging coming out, some in the media is that they're neutral about the C League. Edmonton supposedly has thrown its lot in with NASL. How do you react to that? How do you react to a possible C League starting up? As someone who wrote the article from an American perspective for our friend Steve Sandor's publication, The Eleven, I'll tell you, uh, it's different from an NASL perspective, obviously, but from a Canadian player development perspective, they have to have their own professional league. 
they they're in a position where the three MLS teams that are in that country, in order to compete in Major League Soccer, have filled their roster up with American players and foreign players, and they're not concerned about developing Canadian players. And I think we're we're seeing Ottawa and Edmonton in our league in in the second division go in that direction too. Not quite to the extremes Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver have, but they have to have their own league. So. It will hurt NASL, no doubt, and it will limit NASL's opportunities to expand in Canada, even if Edmonton and Ottawa stick with the league. But from just a macro soccer sense, from Canadian soccer, CONCACAF perspective, they have to do this. They have to get this done. They have to do uh, get it done, but the, the question is when it will get done. I mean, I, four years ago, I was actually um, uh, asked as part of a survey to uh, help the CSA answer some questions about minor, you know, minor league soccer and what they could do that we've seen works in the U S and, and, you know, they've been talking about this for the longest time. And then it's, you know, you hear that it's going to take one form and then you hear, no, it's going to take another form or who will be able to join and who won't be able to join. Um, it just, it just seems like this thing is going to be bogged down forever. I, I agree yeah. though with you that it is necessary for Canada to have their own league to, oh. To, to develop their players. How important is Canadian expansion and maintaining those Canadian teams to NASL today? Not I don't important. think it's that important. I don't not think it's that important. Im- not as important as it used to be. I agree. Uh, I, I think for a while it was the fertile frontier. Uh, it was the fallback uh, if things didn't work out. Uh, but, but you know, the D2 standards sort of changed some of that. I mean, you know, you have to have a certain percentage that's domestic anyway, so your your ability to expand in Canada, Canada is already limited, especially Puerto Rico counts as, as non-U.S., which I believe it does. So it's – and, and I'll, t- I'll tell you what else is going to limit the Canadian expansion. We haven't really delved into this, but I think it's still a motivating factor. It's not just the percentage that has to be U.S., What's also going to limit, and I think you've already seen it because, you know, Hamilton was like the next big thing, and now that's dropped off the face of the earth. Here's what I think has happened. Uh, I don't know whether these new changes in D1 standards are going to ever happen. They were proposed, and they're in stasis right now. But if you look at the league's expansion efforts, they are taking their directives from some of those proposed changes, Mean specifically that you have to have a certain percentage of, of clubs in a 2 million or more metro statistical area as opposed to 1 million. And you've pretty much tapped out your one, your 2 million uh, uh, MSAs up in Canada. You don't have, you might have one left and I don't even know if that's correct. So, you know, Hamilton surely isn't uh, Calgary, maybe Calgary might be the only one. I think that's the only one that's left. So, you know, the, all those other places, Winnipeg and, 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 and Hamilton, are all 1 million or more, and they kind of fell by the wayside as soon as you started hearing rumors about these D1 changes, and I think that's where the league's attention is. That's why you, you're now hearing more of an impetus, although it was already there, toward Chicago, uh, Los Angeles, San Francisco, who knows where else. And by the way, on the Cana- by the way, on the Canadian League, the only thing I'll add is the same thing I've always said about it. I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> the CSA doesn't have the best track record uh, for those yeah. who aren't familiar with them, and and our friend Steve Sandor can tell you so much more about it than than we can. So, so all of you sidestepped my question about credibility earlier, <laughs> but I'll, uh, I'll I'll mention one of the statements that we heard out of the NASL front office recently, which is that we'll be at eighteen teams by the end of the year, and that we'll have twenty teams by the end of next year and next year we're going to have three new expansions that we have that have been officially announced puerto rico miami and rio uh san antonio is totally up in the air but can i get you to react to that statement and then just uncompile what you think of the expectations of these three expect expansions and brian i'm gonna have you go first uh, well it it again we talk about credibility and then you're talking about a team next year like you know uh rail that that is going to all of a sudden is announced and supposed to be ready in how many months from now, uh, uh, six months from now, not even, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that's like when the Minnesota stars all of a sudden, and at least there was a thun- Minnesota thunder before then. But I mean, all of a sudden at dis- in December, they're trying to pull a team together for the following spring. And it's, it's like, we've seen this pattern for a while of teams having a little more 
uh, time to get it right, uh, Jacksonville um, and uh, Indy. But now, now we're into this phase where we're going to push so hard that uh, we're going to expand teams within six months, nine months, and not have any buildup or any lead time. And uh, it's concerning to me. It's very concerning. You know, the, the article that I published today, I, I quoted uh, Bill Peterson in an interview he gave me in January of 2013. So just, I don't know, less than two years ago. We're giving each expansion team 18 months from closing the expansion deal to opening their debut season, Peterson explains. The league is coming out of the phase where you got to have eight teams, you got to get teams, unquote, to where do we want teams, who do we want to own those teams, and how much time do we, do we take to really build an organization, unquote. <laughs> I think the curious quote is what has changed maybe inside or outside the league since then, because that is the strategy. And I've talked about this forever. One of the things I liked about this league is that they gave these teams an incubation period to either succeed or fail, by the way. I mean, people like to deride the NASL about the Virginia Calvary uh, problem, but you know, they failed before they took the field. It didn't work out, but it's better than when they get around and kick a ball out and, and get a, and get the market into a, a full mint and then pull the rug out. I, I prefer the way it happened. They had a roll-up period. It didn't work fine. Uh, but it helped Jacksonville. It helped Indy. It helped Ottawa, all of whom had you know, 15, 18 months to a couple of years before they entered the league. That's something David Downs talked about yeah. when he was commissioner. Um, now you're seeing an accelerated uh, schedule. And to me, it's one of two things, and it's probably both. It's A, back to that extracting value discussion that we talked about before, where you've got people like Ricardo Silva and Carmelo Anthony and some mid-level Liga team who are standing there with a check ready to cut it for an expansion fee, which, by the way, MLS does it all the time. So that's, that's how some of these owners around the league are going to extract value from this league. If you've got people interested and they're willing to cut checks, all the better. You've also seen the NASL, no two ways about it, get beaten to the punch in a variety of, of markets that they were interested in by USL and maybe some of the same investors they were talking to. Cardick probably knows more about this than I do. And I'm not saying the NSL was ever going to go to Lehigh Valley and Reno, but we know darn well that they were interested in Tulsa, Cincinnati, Louisville, St. Louis. They were interested in all of those markets and they all got co-opted. And I think, uh, by the way, that's probably why you're 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 seeing a Rio OKC because they're just sick of getting their ha their hats handed to them by USL in some of these markets. So the NASL is saying if we've got wealthy owners that are willing to cut us checks, we better move now because if we tell these folks they've got to sit on their their hands for two years while they build up their club, they may say, well, the heck with it. We'll just jump to USL. We better start while we can. I think that's what's going on. I don't like it. I think it's ultimately going to be bad for the league, um, but it may be the new reality. Yeah, that that sounds about right, Neil. I think I think you've you've pretty much nailed it on the head. I, I think the markets you mentioned, in addition to Sacramento, Sacramento was a real bitter pill to swallow yeah. for us because we yeah. had we were talking to that group, and I had I personally, as, as the press officer at the time, had no idea, and it was right as David was on his way out, and. So David wasn't able to go. It was as we were making the transition from Peterson, uh, from Downs to Peterson, wasn't able to make a, another trip out there as the commissioner to Sacramento. And that's when the team got announced by USL. And uh, I, I got caught off guard even that morning telling uh, the Sacramento Bee one thing, uh, telling uh, uh, our, our friend uh, Evan Ream something. And then it turns out USL announces the team later that afternoon saying, hey, we, you know, we're, we're really interested in the market. We've got a new commissioner coming in. We haven't named him yet, but, but basically we've got someone coming in and we're going we're gonna to be looking at this market in December. And then this is about November 15th, and they named Sacramento. So I think all of that is true, and I think the, the NASL had been beaten to the punch in a lot of those places. This all having been said, it is very, very difficult to, to ramp up a team this quickly. So with Ottawa... Ottawa had an existing PDL team. They had an existing W League team. We essentially had them in our league in late 2010. We announced them in the middle of 2011. They don't kick a ball until spring of 2014. Uh, Indy, 
long ramp up for them too. It was about 18 months. Jacksonville was about two years. San Antonio we had from August 2010, and they didn't kick a ball until 2012 right. April. So that's been, and those teams have all had a varying degrees of success. I mean, I think they've all been at least initially successful in in NASL. The question is now Oklahoma City, which is an existing market for. Uh, for for USL, where USL is doing quite well, and then Miami and Puerto Rico, which are both markets which have failed in at this level before, and Miami being a market which is shared by another NASL team. I know Bill Peterson wants to claim that they're separate markets. They're not separate markets. I'm already seeing in the wake of the Gunter Kronsteiner uh, release or, or, or sacking, or however you want to describe it, by Fort Lauderdale. Uh, Fort Lauderdale fans and members of the supporters group saying, you know what, maybe we'll just go to Miami FC games next year. Now, I don't think they will, but the point is it's close enough. It's the same market. It's the same media market. It's the same television market. And I was actually talking to someone who very close to the NASL earlier today who said, yeah, I've already noticed the media coverage and one of your papers has gone from being more strikers laden to one of your daily papers. We have two daily papers down here. More strikers laden to being more Miami FC laden. So it's it's a market which the NASL has an existing team, and it's the point. So you're you're having these short ramp up periods in these challenging markets, and that may not bode well for the future. I do have to point out one thing about Oklahoma City, though. I've been told that Taft Stadium, where McLaughlin and his partners with OKC Energy are playing, uh, has some uh, uh, accessibility issues, has some issues as far as far as parking is concerned. There have been even though the club is very well run, the team is very good. Their front office is one of the best front offices in, in minor league soccer, be it USL or NASL, OKC Energies is. There have been some bad fan experiences at games at Taft Stadium that it is possible that those fans would gravitate to Rio with another option in town. So it's not as big a shot in the dark as some might think it is, but it's still going to be a challenge. Is there, but is there an alternative to the race to the bottom where we got to beat USL to the punch, so we have to move quickly? Is there an alternative to that, or is that just what they now have to do to maintain their lead? You know, well, we we talked about this in the in the TOA discussion a bit, and I made the point that it's really been interesting watching USL. Uh, because at first they floundered a bit, but then they realized that they did not have second division standards, to which were much more difficult to attain, right? Um, so without those, all those standards, uh, financial wherewithal, all the other things, stadiums, they could capture markets quicker than the NASL. And so I think it's been a real advantage for USL. They've used it to their advantage to not have all those high standards. So on the one, it, it's it's kind of a catch-22. On the one hand, the, the USSF standards have improved the viability of the league and, and how long these teams are staying around. But on the other hand... It's 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 also hurt them in some ways because they it's harder for them to expand. So maybe this is what we get a, a, a six month or a nine month run in. And, and following up on that, the United States Soccer Federation has been absolutely unwilling in its official communications or in the ways they describe these leagues to describe NASL openly as a second division above USL. They have not done anything to rein in USL's continued claims that they're the highest level of soccer, most experienced, blah, blah, blah below Major League Soccer. So, again, the United States Soccer Federation, I I, I gave my spiel about them earlier. I think that they are absentee landlords, so to speak, with their own agenda, and they have empowered USL despite having... forcing USL to self-relegate the third division because they didn't meet second division standards and because they had so many uh, iffy owners and iffy markets. This whole thing has actually empowered USL because the U.S. Soccer Federation won't even step in and say, yeah, NASL NASL clubs, NASL owners, NASL uh, NASL is a league are, are meeting a higher standard and a higher threshold of professional soccer than USL. So there are a lot of other issues we could talk about. I mean, one thing we didn't even touch on at all was broadcasting, for example, which is a big topic of discussion this year. A lot of, I think we could just keep going, but we have hit the mark, I think, where we do need to call it a night and say that's where we have to leave it. Um, I doubt all three of you will uh, 
end the conversation here. I'm sure there'll be people asking you much, many, many more things on Twitter. Go read. All three of these guys uh, are on their own places online. Can you, all three of you, each of you, just tell us where people can find you? Brian, we'll start with you. Yeah, it's I am I am Soccer News is my Twitter handle, and uh, I occasionally write for NorthernPitch.com. Karthik. I'm KKFLA737 on Twitter, and I'm all over the place <laughs> at different websites. Uh, I have too many to name. World Soccer Talk is the primary one, which is worldsoccertalk.com. And Neil? Um, my Twitter handle is by Neil Morris, and uh, most of my copy, or the vast majority, is at WRALsportsfan.com. Fantastic, guys. Well, Tremendous insights. I know I learned a whole heck of a lot here tonight. Just want to say to everyone listening, you can subscribe to Toughcast at TWO United Fans. That's Twitter. Uh, we're also on iTunes, Stitcher. Subscribe and you'll get the new episodes a little while before I announce them on Twitter because sometimes these things upload overnight and you get them for your morning commute before they go out. Uh, thanks so much, everybody, for joining us. Thank you, Brian, Karthik, Neil. Uh, and by the way, if you're looking for Neil online, his name is spelled N E I L. Just want to make that clear. (laughs) Uh, But have a good night, everybody. Goodbye.